welcome to the Small Staff Big Impact Podcast. My name is Justin Mernisky, uh, and I am joined today with the co-authors of a very exciting white paper, Innovate the Lean Way, Applying Lean Startup Methodology in the Association Environment. Um, the authors are Elizabeth Weaver-Ingle, CEO and Chief Strategist at Spark Consulting, and Guillermo Ortiz de Zatara, uh, and I messed that up, Zarata, <laughs> <laughs> Director Director Information Systems National Council of Architectural Registration Boards. Uh, welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. So I wanted to kick off, and uh, Elizabeth, I'm going to send this your way. Uh, can you just, for people who haven't had a chance to read the white paper, uh, and maybe to get them excited about reading the white paper, can you introduce the concept of a lean startup and how it applies to, to non-startup organizations? Sure. Um, so, and I, I guess I can talk a little bit about how the white paper came to be, too. Um, Guillermo and I had worked on an earlier white paper together, and through conversations with that, realized that we were both interested in the concept of lean startup um, and how it might be able to apply to associations. We both felt like it was something that associations would really benefit from. So, lean startup was originally developed by a guy named Eric Reese, R-I-E-S, um, and he uh, worked in, in startups and worked in the VC world, um, venture capital world, and he was looking at what was going on in startups and realized that a lot of times they were building something very efficiently and effectively that nobody wanted. Um, and so they would put together this, this product that sounded really great, um, and when it actually hit the market, it didn't take off. It, you know, it, it, was, it was a flop. Um, and so he started by looking at lean process improvement, like lean Six Sigma type stuff, where that's all about you know, efficiency and effectiveness and agile development and reducing, uh, reducing waste and reducing mistakes, and realized that he had, he had an insight that um, that's all great, but if you're working on the wrong thing, it doesn't matter how efficiently you do it, you're just going to get to the wrong destination faster. Um, and so he expanded that concept of lean into um, the lean startup methodology, which is built on a couple of things. Um, the build, measure, learn cycle. Um, and inherent in that is building a minimum viable product and something called the pivot. And I think we're going to talk about all of those in a little bit more detail later. But that kind of is the core of the methodology. Um, and Guillermo and I had an insight about startups and associations. And I'm actually going to kick it to Guillermo to talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, I was, um, you know, we, we met with uh, Elizabeth in, in a couple conferences here and there, and uh, we also presented uh, the other white paper a couple times, and, um, you know, I was uh, always a little bit frustrated with uh, some of the process, uh, uh, the product development and service development processes that I was able to see and listen. Even some of the sessions were you know, very big on on details and process and how to and how to plan and and these long cycles of two years of developing something and I um, haven't been uh, reading that that methodology the lean startup I I, I could see how uh, it was the wrong message to give associations because they we all have very limited resources so 
uh, we started chatting with with Elizabeth how uh, maybe it would be a good idea to actually pitch the opposite of long cycles of uh, product development and and actually iterate faster to make sure you go to the right destination as she was saying so uh, that's how we came about to to write the, the white paper okay so uh, Guillermo when you you kind of uh, you've ex had experience in applying this to some extent within your organization, correct? Um, can you talk a little bit about that experience and maybe how, uh, you know, what you kind of learned through that process and then also how, you know, I can, I definitely agree that there's a, a great opportunity here for associations, particularly there's so many small, so small staff or even micro staff associations. Um, and so if you have any thoughts on, uh, you know, sort of elaborating further on that, why this is so great for organizations with limited, limited monetary resources. I think that would be really helpful for people to hear. Yeah, I think it all it all comes down to that, the famous, you know, uh, idea of uh, there's no free lunch in the world. Uh, it's, it's actually uh, a trade-off always. There's always a, an opportunity cost uh, for you to be doing something else. And as you say, in, in associations uh, that have very limited resources, micro-staff associations, uh, ideas uh, are, you know, what's in abundance. You know, you, you have a lot of ideas uh, and a lot of things that you think you could do to uh, be relevant to your audience. And how do you choose what to work on? Because you can you can do two things at the same time, and resources are really limited. Um, and maybe the, the one thing you can, that is the most, limited thing of all is time because you cannot get that back. Um, so how do you spend your time? How do you spend your resources? Um, you know, wh how do you decide which one to do? And, um, you know, I, I always had this feeling that um, trying to protect the brand and trying to launch something that is perfect uh, always gave me the idea that we were missing some something, and when I read the book, it was very clear about the fact that um, the the longer you wait to get real feedback from the real audience on your real product, then um, the the higher the risk of missing the point and actually working on the wrong thing. And I had a great uh, example at work, which we put in the white paper, which is um, a feature that anecdotally seemed to be very important for a big part of our audience which we spent about six months working on and put a lot of resources into it and it was beautiful and we did it on time and on budget and we used agile methodology and we iterated and we were having fun and we even also learned a lot through the process but at the end of the day when you see uh, the adoption of that feature uh, which is pretty low is under five percent I think still today you would think uh, that maybe we missed the point and there was a trade-off, there was an opportunity cost there that we could have done something else instead of that that would have had a bigger impact. And Guillermo, I think the point that you raised about um, the case studies in the white paper is a really good one here. So the, the white paper has four different case studies. NCARB is a pretty good-sized organization. Two of them are ASHA, the American Speech Language Hearing Association, and IEEE. Well, those are both huge, obviously. Um, and so, you know, a small staff association could look at that and kind of throw up their hands and say, well, you know, this is obviously not for us. I mean, you, got, you have to have big staff, big budget, lots of resources. Um, 
And in fact, that's not the case. Um, I would say of the four associations we profiled, the smallest one was um, NAFSA, the Association of International Educators, and they're actually probably the farthest along um, in what they're doing with uh, Lean Startup and in the way they're using it to innovate. Um, because there's when when you have truly limited resources, I mean, all organizations have limited resources in some way. None of us has you know, $11 billion, um, but, you know, when you have truly limited resources like a small staff association, it is even more important that you be investing them correctly, um, and this methodology helps with that. The other thing that's really interesting, I think, about Lean Startup is that um, it requires nimbleness, um, and that is one of the things that smaller associations very much have in common with actual startup organizations. Um, it, it is much easier to turn a tugboat than it is to turn an aircraft carrier. Well, IEEE and ASHA in our world are the aircraft carriers. Small staff associations tend to be very nimble. Um, and that whole concept of getting a minimum viable product out there and particularly the pivot require nimbleness. This is an area where a smaller organization actually has the advantage. Interesting. I, you you've mentioned Elizabeth uh, minimum viable products a couple times, uh, and the, the process obviously requires that you get to this sort of uh, you know, minimum location of whatever you're producing that sort of has um, that can go into the market. But can you sort of further define a minimum viable product? How do you know when you've reached the point? I mean, I feel like. You know, Guillermo kind of talked about it, that a lot of associations are always worried about their brand, and they're worried, well, if I don't put out um, a quality product, at least a certain level of quality, that people are going to start to reflect poorly upon, it's going to reflect poorly upon my organization, it's going to reflect poorly upon me. Um, so how do you, this obviously requires a change in thinking, and, and, and how do you kind of know when you've reached that minimum viable product in general? The... The thing with the minimum viable product is basically it is something that is is minimum. <laughs> There's a reason for that. Um, what you're looking to do is you are looking to build something that is the smallest possible investment of resources, human, volunteer, financial, etc., um, that actually does or approximates whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. So it has enough features to actually give people a flavor of what you're trying to do um, so that you can let them start using it and start getting their feedback. Um, and I think one of the things that's, that's interesting about the Minimum Viable Product, um, or MVP, um, as it's called in Lean Startup Circles, is that um, you are, your, your MVP is not going to be something that is going to necessarily be appropriate for everyone, let's put it that way. Um, so basically what you're trying to do is build a prototype. Um, and there's all different kinds of prototypes that you can run or, or create. And there's all different kinds of tests that you can run against it. Because right, build measure, in order to measure something you have to be testing a hypothesis or, or a theory or an assumption or a concept. Um, and so what you're going to do is run all different kinds of of tests against this. The white paper lists all different kinds of prototypes you can build, 
all different kinds of tests that you can run. One of the things that's interesting about this idea of we're going to test something that's not finished is the people who are willing to help you test that are going to self-select. Um, because a lot of the, the, the prototyping and a lot of the testing is about um, building something that you're admitting up front is partial, temporary, not finished. You are intentionally soliciting people's feedback. You're going out to people and saying, you know, we've got a concept, we've kind of built this thing that's a little bit like it, we'd love to hear what you think about that. The people who are okay with using something that's still in beta form, that maybe doesn't have all the features or work completely correctly or whatever, are going to self-select by saying, yeah, I'm interested in basically helping you co-develop or co-create this whatever it is. Um, and they'll be the ones who will raise their hands and say, yeah, sure, I'm happy to try something that's in beta and tell you what I think. Um, and the people in your membership or in your, in your uh, audiences who are not comfortable with that will not self-select to help you with co-creation and co-development. That makes sense. Guillermo, I'm curious, you know, this with the MVP, this um, minimum viable product, uh, you know, I, putting it out there and getting sort of explaining it's a beta test, I think makes can make sense. But I could imagine there are certain associations or certain membership groups that maybe you, you know, as a, a membership director or someone in charge of dealing with membership, like, well, I, I you know, I'm worried about them feeling like guinea pigs or uh, I don't. Um, you know, or, you know I, my membership isn't that kind of group of people. They don't, they don't like to use. Maybe if your 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 product is technology based, it's like, well, they don't like technology, and I don't want to frustrate them. And they would just have all these questions that wouldn't make sense. Or is there communication you can recommend, or ways you can kind of set the stage when you're you're going into this process to ensure that the not only you know, Communication, I guess, to also to your staff, but to your members, so that they are really prepared to participate in uh, and build on this this process. Well, I tell you that um, the the one thing we all need to remember is the main focus of an MVP is to test your assumptions, uh, is to try to really understand if this is worth pursuing, right? So, in that framework, um, what you what you're building is is not it's not the product you're trying to sell them, but it's a product that is similar to what you're trying to sell them so that you can test your assumptions before you invest in, in building that product. So, um, you, you know, in, in that terms, as, as Elizabeth was saying, this is really like the scientific method. You need to create an experiment. You need to have something you're trying to understand from, from the MVP. And, you know, um, in some cases, uh, I, you know, you know, you go to Great Ideas, an ASAE uh, conference that uh, it's all about sharing great ideas, and what happens is that many people actually get very excited very quickly about hearing what somebody else did. Initially, that's a little dangerous because you can turn around and then go back to your to your staff and say, "We're going to do this because this other one did it and it was great for their, you know, perception analysis or whatever." Um, and what I'm saying is that's to have the idea at the beginning is fantastic, but then um, going back to the, the you know the trade-off uh, situation is when which one is more important to do this one or the other one. So what kind of MVP can you build to test that assumption and to test if this this is a real 
problem for the real audience that you're thinking and is this a solution that fits the bill so um, you know I'm not sure I'm still answering your question because there's a lot of doubt in, in what we're saying and maybe um, actually doing it for the first time might might shed some light on on what it looks like but as an, as an example there are a few in, in, the, in the white paper um, we had another request for a feature for our website this is technology again and um, well Although the feature might have looked like it was an easy and, and no-brainer thing to do, at the same time there was a lot of work that we needed to do in the back end to clean up processes and legacy systems and all that to make sure that this worked properly. So instead of actually jumping on that feature, what we did is we, we put a fake button on our, on, our, on our tool. It was a fake thing there and you would click it. And and it was uh, real enough to to make to so that people knew what they were clicking and what they were supposed to get after they clicked that. But instead of actually giving them the thing, we actually had personnel in the office call them. So the message, the communication that we we're giving them is like, "Thanks for soliciting this feature. Somebody will contact you uh, momentarily, and somebody will pick up the phone and continue the process from there." But the experiment was about measuring if that feature actually was something that people needed. Is this a solution they need for a problem they have? Um, and now that we discussed that, we are uh, releasing this feature in, I think, in a couple of weeks. So we did spend maybe six more months working on it, but we had some clear evidence that this was a real need. And I, I will say that one of the things that's required here is knowing your audiences. Um, I'm going to stereotype for a moment, but you know, you you could no, you could say, oh well, our more mature members may not necessarily be the right people to introduce this to for the first time, but lots of associations have the goal of trying to engage young professionals, and particularly if the features or new programs, products, and services you're looking at are something to do with technology, what you might want to do is reach out intentionally to your young professionals as the people who are going to um, be acknowledged beta testers of whatever this is um, and say, you know, look, we're going to, whatever this is, we're going to let you use it for free. Um, we're releasing it only to you guys. You guys are special. Um, you know, we definitely want your feedback because we need you to help us build this together. And they, they can just be, that can be something as, as small as, a truly like a micro-volunteering opportunity. We just need you to try this for us and spend five minutes telling us what you think. All the way up to um, something like forming, we want to form an advisory committee um, that's going to actually be ongoing and help us develop this. Um, and, you know, like, like I said, I was, you know, kind of joking a little bit about, you know, maybe it's not your more mature members, maybe it's your young members. But I'll, I'll bet that if you think about it, you at least know the beginnings of people in your membership who are open to new ideas. And that's where you start. I think that also this podcast is a great example. If, if somebody has an idea, uh, you know, that there's some content that some audience really would like to hear or would, would be very interested in learning. And your original idea is to actually have a conference around it or an actual, you know, uh, in face, I mean, face-to-face -face meeting 
um, in some location. And that's what you set out to do. Um, maybe you're missing the opportunity to learn that although people are interested in the content, the solution is not exactly what they're waiting, what they're looking for. And actually, they say, I really want to learn this, but I don't have the time. My budget is very limited with training. And the audience is telling you, I really want to learn the thing, but maybe a podcast would be better. And if you learn that early enough, you know, it's a, that's, a, that's maybe uh, um, Elizabeth will dive into the pivot a little bit more. But that would be a pivot right there. It was like, okay, I was going, our original destination was a full conference, uh, big meeting in a, in a facility, in a hotel, and I ended up doing a podcast instead. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that's a great thing to learn as early as possible. I think, you know, that's a great example. I do want to jump in and defend uh, both my grandmothers are very active online. Um, <laughs> I have one grandmother, uh, she's actually published an ebook, so, um, nice. you know, that's I awesome. spent a lot of time at a, a, a Mac store, uh, which I know Good. Guillermo would love to hear. Um, <laughs> so, but, uh, uh, but the pivot, yeah, let's get, Elizabeth, let's, can you, the, we referenced it a couple times, let's, Let's talk about what is. How do you define a pivot? How do you know when you've reached a point when you need to pivot? Um, I mean, we haven't talked about failure, but it seems like this process. You kind of uh, there's the opportunity for failure, obviously. And so, how do you how do you leverage failure? How do you and how do you use a pivot, or what do you define? I mean, I, every time I hear pivot, I think pivot tables. I think Excel. I don't. I mean, but I, I'm assuming I'm, that's, I'm heading the wrong direction to some extent. So yeah, no, no, no. Don't be scared. You don't have to do stuff with Excel if you don't want to. Um, so you know, back to we've got the build, measure, learn cycle. All right, and so building is building the minimum viable product, um, and then you inherent in that you need to make sure you're building something that you can test because you have to test. Your assumptions. So um, it's important to set up your your tests so that there aren't too many variables in motion at any given time, because then you're not going to be able to figure out what's cause and effect if you've got 14 possible causes and something changed. Well, which one of those caused that? I don't know. Um, so you know you're you're testing and you're measuring what's going on, and then the the pivot comes at the third piece of the cycle, the learning part, where when you've got a hypothesis that you're testing, you're, you're going to discover either that it is likely true or that it is likely false. The pivot comes when you've got, aha, my hypothesis, the assumption that I was testing, is not correct. Okay, so now I need to figure out either I didn't have the right audience, this wasn't actually really a problem for them, or those are both okay, but my solution doesn't work. Um, and there are about a zillion, I mean, you can pivot in all kinds of different directions. Um, and again, the white paper lists a whole bunch of them. There's way more out there in the lean startup literature. Um, and the white paper also has a pretty extensive bibliography of that. Um, but one of my favorite examples of this is, um, and this is in a known story in the lean startup world, um, is YouTube. So, I mean, we all obviously know what YouTube is. They originally started out as a video site, but it was videos for dating. So they, you know, people would post. It was, it was, um, people would post videos as as part of a um, an online dating service. Well, the idea was a good one, right? People wanted to be able to post videos online. That's a solid solution. 
they just they have the wrong audience. It wasn't working properly, confined narrowly to online dating. And once they said, well, wait a second, what if we just let people post any kind of videos online, like cute cat videos or fun dance entrances for our wedding or song parodies or you know whatever. Um, all of a sudden it took off. So that was a pivot. We have an idea, it's a good idea, it's a good solution, it's an interesting problem, our audience is bad, hang on, let's pivot the audience. Um, and there can be pivots around any of those three things. Um, the, the key is what you've done is you've been paying attention in that measure step, you've been paying attention to what you find out and that gives you a clue of what direction do we need to take this instead of the original direction we thought it should go. So it's kind of failure and kind of not. Yeah, I would say um, consider pivots like uh, just little deviations from the original uh, original plan. It doesn't have to be, um, and, and the reason it's called a pivot is because you're not stopping and, and killing the project. You're not really um, changing the idea completely. You're just making small variations to your original idea because you're learning that some of your assumptions were not correct. Some of your assumptions were and some of, of them were not. They were slightly off. Uh, they, yeah, they need that, but not exactly that. They need something similar. Oh, okay, so what if we try this around? And what you do is you build again something that helps you test this new assumption that, oh, it was close, but not, not so much uh, what we thought. So uh, the pivot is maybe um, the, the, the whole aha moment of, of this methodology where, where you know, Eric Ries realized that he could, um, you know, really achieve, achieve great success by doing small corrections along the way. Um, instead of trying to get it right the first time around, spend two years building something and then releasing to the public and learning uh, a little too late. And Guillermo, I actually think that's a really good analogy. Is you know, if you think about this as like you're you're on a journey, you discover that something about your plan is not what you thought it was, and rather than stopping the journey, you course correct. Yeah, there, there's a great. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. I've seen it going around on LinkedIn and maybe Facebook too. People like to put this little graph that shows uh, it shows two two little cartoons. One says your original plan, and there's a guy with a bicycle, and then at the end is a straight line and a, and a place where he's trying to go. And then it zooms out and it shows all these traps and lakes and you know fire and all these things that this person didn't think would come into the path of this project. Um, and every time I see that, instead of instead of actually getting the idea that projects are uh, so uncertain and are usually doomed to fail, I actually I see a great example for the lean startup because if you actually instead of planning the whole path at once and then executing your plan without learning from the experiences you're seeing then that's when you're doomed to fail but if actually plan in small iterations and you're uh, nimble enough to say okay I need to to slightly change my direction here because there's a big obstacle in front of me then actually that's that's great uh, that's that's what it, uh, lets you get to success 
And Guillermo, one of my favorite things that you have a tendency to, to point out about this whole method is, you know, we tend to think of failure as being, oh, my, my assumption was bad, so therefore I'm bad. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of the things that you, you're fond of pointing out that I love is you are in, in that whole measure-learn process, you are intentionally trying to prove yourself wrong um, because it is only by a trying to, I mean, it, it's the scientific method, right? You're trying to disprove your hypothesis um, because that's the only way you can make sure that this is really right audience, right problem, right solution, we're going the right direction, this is the best possible investment of our resources. It's hard to do, though. Uh, we all have our egos, and, and especially, you know, when one of us has this idea that we really think is the greatest idea ever, it's, it's very hard to have the mental power to, to recognize uh, when the idea is not quite right. So um, that's why this methodology helps you, because if you present it as an experiment and the evidence is speaking loud enough that you cannot you ignore it, then then you need to change. Um, I, you know, failure is a word that we all we nobody likes, and um, and I do think that there's there's two kinds of failures. There's the um, the failure in an experiment, and then there's the failure on, on something that you're supposed to be doing right. Um, and there's a big difference there. So if you're supposed to, you know, uh, I always bring up I'm a I'm a big uh, Spurs fan, the, the NBA team, and I'm a big fan of the coach, uh, Popovich. I don't know if you guys know him. And this guy, is, you know, he rules, uh, he's, he's a very hard leader um, but and very successful. But you would see that usually the way he reacts <clears throat> when he's on TV is like he would get very, very mad when they don't do things that they're expected to do well. But then if, if you have an open shot and you want to gamble on that shot and you take the shot, he's okay with that. So if, if, there's, if, you, if you create a, turn, uh, you know, a turnaround, if you give up the ball because you're trying something um, that is new and, then, and it's an experiment, it's okay, to, it's okay to fail there. But it's not okay to fail on things that you're supposed to do well. Um, and I think that's the biggest difference here. And I think you identified something really important, which is this concept that we tend to fall in love with our own ideas, right? You know, it, 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 whether it's a staff person or you know, one of the infamous highest income or highest influence person in the room, um, we have a tendency to fall in love with our own ideas, right? I have the idea. Of course, I think it's a great idea. Um, and one of the things that's cool about getting very intentional about measurement is that it removes a lot of the subjectivity. Well, I think this is a great idea because I think it's a great idea because it's my idea and I love my idea. Um, no, this is about, okay, that's, that's fine. What's your testable hypothesis and what happened? And if you learn that your hypothesis was wrong, it takes the pressure off of, well, somebody else just decided this, that this was a bad idea and now we're having this subject of conversation where, you know, I think it's a great idea and you think it's a bad idea. Mm -mm. It's it's we've created a, a testing hypothesis, and the test showed that it's not correct. You know, so basically, it takes that it takes that pressure of I have to be right all the time off of me. And and you know what? Usually, the outcome is is not that it's a good idea or a bad idea. It's usually mm -hmm. 
we were close. It's mm. not quite that one, and uh, and that's very empowering. Uh, yeah, I think this is. I remember a teacher at some point in my life trying to convince us that we don't make mistakes, but if or if you make a mistake, you just say how fascinating, and you <laughs> move on from there. And so, uh, because every every you know, every every everything should be a learning experience. So I think you know Elizabeth's point about being a little more data driven is really powerful. Um, Guillermo, do you have any advice for people? You know, you, you mentioned it's very hard. Um, the mentality side. I mean, I, I think there is sort of a uh, change management in the the thought process of your staff to start implementing this lean startup methodology. But is there any? Are there any other any ways you can recommend for people to kind of dive into the process? To uh, you know, after listening to this podcast, obviously go read the white paper. Uh, but then once you know, once you're ready to kind of get the rubber to hit the road, what what then? What how? What do you? Any thoughts? Any recommendations? Uh, well, the the first thing I want to say is that um, what happened to me was that I actually uh, fell in love with the principles, um, and to the point that um, I, I think that not using these principles is is a complete mistake. So every time, like I'm always picking up the opportunities that we have to be using the, these principles and we're not. So it's this now I'm I'm seeing it everywhere. I'm like, oh, we, we should be using Lean Startup for that one because there's a lot of assumptions here and we don't know. Um, so I would say read the white paper. Uh, read The white paper is full of other resources there. Uh, let the principle convince you to the core where you're really a hardcore you know, Lean Startup person. Go to you know go to uh, meetups and, and lean startup circles and read a little bit more, and then uh, it will come natural. I think uh, the other day I had a, a brief meeting with um, my peers from another directorate, uh, and they were coming to me with an idea for a feature that they want to give to their uh, the candidates that take that take our test um, as a service, and you know. I listened to them. The idea was great. Uh, I think there was a lot of sense. And I, what my counteroffer to them was, why don't we run a couple experiments that uh, should be easy? So the the first thing I said is like, what if instead of doing that, we first start very small by doing this little thing? And it was maybe a survey with an email to gather some data uh, and see who clicks it or not and, and whatnot. And um, what happened was that they were all for it. They really loved the idea of testing the t testing the idea and and see if we had had to change it in the future. Uh, but the reason I was able to do that was because we were peers and the idea was coming kind of like grassroots from the bottom up, and it was a little bit on a uh, subversive approach where you know nobody really knew we were working on this. Uh, maybe it's a little bit different when it's coming from the top. Uh, I think that we need our best, um, you know, to use our best um, wisdom when, when ideas come from the top, uh, challenging them from the get-go is usually counterproductive. Um, so maybe, maybe what you do is you do set the destination to that idea coming from the top, but you make sure that along the way you have chances to learn and to maybe influence little changes, little pivots along the way without saying no from the beginning. And I think that's actually a really important point, Guillermo, is that 
you know, in, at NCARB, people are pretty pretty much on board with the idea of using this methodology. Well, what if you're trying to bring it into your association for the first time, and and everybody's really skeptical about this? Don't start with, okay, this is like the major signature initiative that our board has identified for the next three years, and we're going to use this methodology that everybody is not sure is going to work. No, no, no. Um, what you want to do is start small. Um, just like the the methodology itself says, start small with a minimum viable product. You're going to start small with the methodology. Start with a project that's completely under your own control, something that is happening just in your realm of authority, um, where you don't have to get 17 other people, you know, some of them staff, some of them volunteers, some of them members, whatever, to all agree that this is how you're going to work this project. Start with something that you or just you and your team are doing, and demonstrate that the methodology works in that in that project. You know, hopefully you'll start with we've got some assumptions and now we start testing them and we find out some of them are right and some of them aren't. So we make some small pivots and then you know these pivots are gradually sort of tick 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 ticking us more towards the right direction that we need to go. And we're doing this iterative development process and you know at the end we came out with something that was a much better match for our audience, their problem and the solution that they wanted, hopefully in you know, a more efficient, effective, less resource intensive kind of way. Um, and then you can say, you know, look, we had this project, we used this methodology and look at, look at how well this came out at the end. You know, after we had made all those adjustments and tested all those assumptions and everything. And then once people see that the methodology functions and understand how it works with kind of a um, you know a low risk or a lower impact project they get much more willing to try it with something a little bit more high profile that, that's great advice uh, well thank you both so much this has been a really great conversation I wanted to give you uh, both a chance if there's any final thoughts you want to share or anything you'd like to uh, plug obviously you know the white paper the Link will be on the Microstaff blog, and um, but Elizabeth, you want to? If there's anything else, yeah, I just uh, would want to say, you know, if you've been intrigued by this conversation, which hopefully you have, um, grab the white paper, give it a look, share it with your your colleagues. Um, the white paper is not fully in startup training. So it's a good place to start and to get people interested, to introduce the concepts, to get people interested in the ideas. Um, as we've mentioned several times, you know, there's lots of information about types of minimum viable products, um, types of tests, types of pivots, all that kind of stuff in there. There's an extensive bibliography that you can check out, books, videos, um, other articles, white papers, etc. If you really want to do this, you're going to need to get training. Um, and there is information in the white paper as well about places that you can find full training, full conferences. As Guillermo mentioned, um, Lean Startup meetup groups um, or circles. Most major cities have them where it's people who are using this, experimenting with it, interested in it, where you can get together with these people and talk about your experiences and share what you're learning about using the methodology in your own organization. Um, the white paper is just the first step on the Lean Startup journey, um, but if this is something that's of interest to you, take some of those additional steps. 
Um, and I would like to say that we are uh, also available uh, for anyone that wants to chat a little bit more, if they want to reach out to us. Um, uh, there's already a couple of people that we, we've talked uh, offline where they were already trying to do something similar or they, were ha they had a few other questions. Uh, we would love to continue the conversation. Uh, we want to start a, a small revolution here in the association world and see if this could uh, become the next big, big thing. Excellent. Well, thank you both very much for your time today. Uh, and I imagine we'll get to hear more great things from you both in the future. Thank you, Thanks, Justin. Justin. Thanks again to my guests, Elizabeth Weaver Engel and Guillermo Ortiz de Zarata, for joining me today to discuss lean startup methodology and how associations can apply it to their organizations. To read more, make sure to check out their white paper. The link is available both on the Microsoft.org blog and in the description of the podcast. For more great content, make sure to check out the Microsoft.org blog uh, for all your small staff association information. And uh, as always, special thanks to FusionSpan for curating all the content both on Microsoft.org and for the uh, Small Staff Big Impact podcast. Until next time, thank you very much.